All right, is everybody awake now? That song, if you didn't figure it out, is about Lazarus. We're going to talk about the raising of Lazarus this morning. So we've got a long section to read, but I'm going to ask that you read this with me. This is from John chapter 11. I took some uh, snapshots from this long chapter that tells this whole story to try and give you enough of where we're coming from as a backdrop to um, this morning's message. Let's read this. This is from John chapter 11, verses 17 to 27 and verses 38 to 44. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Did I not tell you if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you are always near me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Lord God, we thank you for this sunny morning. We're grateful for the change of seasons. We're grateful for the way that you seem to wake us up with these changes. And as we begin to move ourselves mentally, emotionally, spiritually to be ready for uh, thinking about the passion of Jesus and not only his death but his resurrection, I pray that you would allow us to, to, to dive into these texts and not just leave them in, th in the past but to consider the power and the impact that uh, what Jesus was saying and doing here has on our lives, the hope that he offers, the power that he brings. We thank you that we can rely on him. We thank you that all these years later, there are still people who are one by one hearing the voice of Jesus that calls them out of a deep slumber or that calls them out of passivity or that even calls them out of a, a lack of faith or uh, even a rejection of faith. Use us over the next days and, and weeks 
as we think through uh, how we live out these truths, but also how we reflect them to the people around us. We pray for our neighbors, for our family members. We pray for our co-workers. And we ask that you would make us models of grace. Not that we're perfect, not that we'll get everything right, but that we will consistently reflect the love that you've shown us, the grace and the freedom that you've shown us, the healing that you bring into our lives. We ask that you would be that source of power through every struggle that we deal with and that you would continue to bring hope and a future into our lives. Lord, we want to bring to you right now the the silent things that we've been carrying on our hearts, the struggles of the week, uh, the problems that haven't been solved yet or haven't yet gone away. Hear us right now as we call out to you in silence. Lord, I thank you for every person who is in this room today. And I ask that you will speak to each of us in ways that are right for each one. And I pray that there will be a day or a time or an hour when we will each hear your voice. In Jesus' name, amen. I have a question for you. Are you familiar with the phrase that we use in English that comes out as an idiom, crossing the line. It's an interesting phrase because we interpret that according to context. It can be used a number of different ways. For instance, that phrase can, can mean, uh, sometimes it can refer to an action that makes us a bit uncomfortable. Like when a person who is talking with you invades your personal space to the point where you wish they would take a step back. You can smell the, the, the odor of their toothpaste in the morning because they get so close to you. Jerry Seinfeld created an entire episode about that particular kind of person, uh, calling that the close talker. Some of you remember that one. Sometimes we use the same idiom when someone crosses a boundary and does something that is just plain wrong or unacceptable. Like when a person is joking around and then takes it too far. It goes over an edge. And you respond by saying, hey, you just crossed a line with me, right? Been there? Okay, you've got that. However, those two examples I gave you are negative examples of crossing the line. I'd like to show you a positive example of the same idiom. There's a powerful scene from the life of King David that took place in the ancient city of Bethlehem. If you want to read about it, it's in 2 Samuel chapter 23. And there we read of a time when King David and his warriors were fighting to clear the land of Israel of the nation's enemies. And a band of Philistine soldiers were camped out in David's hometown of Bethlehem. While David and some of his mighty men, they were the the strongest, the most valiant of his warriors, were camped out in a place called the Stronghold. While they were in the Stronghold, David said one particular day, Oh, that someone would get me a drink from the well near the gate in Bethlehem. David was not giving a command here. He was probably just lamenting that his hometown, the place where he had grown up, was filled with these Philistines, and he hated the thought that they were the ones who were drinking from the well that that he had gone to many, many times and brought back water to their home or where he'd found a cool drink on a hot day. 
He was daydreaming of all of those times. That night, the mightiest of his three mighty men sneaked past the Philistine guards into Bethlehem, drew water from the well, and brought it back to David as a gift born out of loyalty to him. Out of love and loyalty, these mighty men crossed the line, this time a battle line, into Bethlehem. How would you react to that? David was horrified. This was too great of a risk. And so as his men gave him this drink of water that they risked their lives for, he takes it and he pours it out on the ground and says, I'm not worthy of drinking this water. That kind of devotion should only go to the Lord. And he turned it into a drink offering to the Lord. In other words, they had crossed a line with David where he was saying, that kind of loyalty doesn't belong to me. That kind of devotion, that kind of life-risking loyalty belongs only to the Lord himself. Got the picture? All right. Now I want to ask you a second question. Do you have somebody in your life who would cross the line for you? Somebody who would put themselves at risk in, in order to somehow make your life a little bit better or uh, to do something that would be a grand gesture of kindness or loyalty toward you? Now, I don't want you to answer that question out loud, but I want you to think about it, and I want you to hold on to that question as we dive into our text for this morning. And I promise I will come back to this point, and we'll, we'll raise that issue again. Do you have somebody in your life who would cross the line for you? This morning, we're starting a short series that will take us through Easter Sunday. The title of this series is very simple. It's asking, what happened? We're going to be looking at events that led to the resurrection, asking that question each week. What happened here? What happened there? Finally, what happened on that Easter Sunday morning? And today we're going to look at the heartbreak and awe that surround the death and rising of Jesus' friend, Lazarus. The song that just preceded me was all about Lazarus coming out of that grave, hearing the voice of Jesus, and walking out. And so we're asking, what happened at the tomb of Lazarus, and how is that connected to our Easter Day resurrection celebration and to the way that we think about our faith today. Here's the main idea that I want to get across. Jesus crossed the line of heartbreak and risk so that we can live forever even though we will all die. Now, when you look at this particular story of Lazarus, one of the first things we discover is that this is a scene of heartbreak. We're asking the question all the way through what happened at, at the tomb of Lazarus. And the first thing I want you to notice is the, the notes of heartbreak that are all around this event. First, we find the heartbreak of delay. Ever experienced a great delay that, that sets you back? Delay is frustrating. A few months ago, I had, I had a flight to Denver, and I had to be there at about 10.30 on a Sunday night. So I got to the airport really early, only to have a seven-and-a-half-hour delay. The plane didn't leave Boston until 2 a.m. I got to Denver, and I was, even though it's two hours behind us, I got there, and I was standing there waiting for a bus to take me to my rental car at 5.15 in the morning. I hadn't had any sleep. Got to the, the, uh, the friend, uh, homes, uh, home of a friend, at about 7 a.m., just in time to shave and turn around and head off to where I was supposed to be at a class at 8 a.m. No sleep the entire day. Frustrated by this massive delay. 
The good thing is they gave me a, a voucher and they paid for the flight because of that ridiculous delay. Here we discover the heartbreak of delay that happens in the life of Lazarus' family. Verse 4 picks this up. When he heard this, what did he heard? That Lazarus was sick. Jesus said, the sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. You need to understand what's going on behind this scene. Lazarus and his two sisters were very close to Jesus. The New Testament presents a couple of scenarios where Jesus stayed at their home. Luke 10 records a scene that the other Gospels do not pick up. One of the sisters, Mary, sits at Jesus' feet like the disciples, learning from the feet of the Master, while Martha, the other sister, slaves in the kitchen, and then she complained about Mary's act of sitting near Jesus to hear him. Jesus tells Mary that she has chosen the better thing and he won't take that away from her despite Martha's complaints. Jesus seems to be signaling that women too can be his valued disciples and when you draw near to him, he will fill you with his wisdom as well. Later on, Mary will pour perfume on Jesus' feet and wipe his feet with her hair. There are two scenarios where this happens and this is the final time where somebody anoints Jesus in this way just before Holy Week begins. This was an expensive, intimate act of devotion. Judas Iscariot was there along with the other disciples and he objected to the extravagance of this act. But Jesus received it openly, announcing that Mary had anointed him for his burial, which got them all wondering, what on earth is he talking about? And then he tells Judas to leave her alone. So where, you might ask, is the heartbreak? The heartbreak comes after Jesus hears that Lazarus was sick and then he delays for two more days before he even begins to make his way back toward the town of Bethany which is less than two miles outside of Jerusalem. It took two more days for them to travel and this means that as much as Jesus loved this family, he did not operate on their schedule. Something else was going on that was driving him. Fulfilling God's purpose was always a higher priority for Jesus than anything else. In this case, even a higher priority than a close friendship. Jesus doesn't say that death will not be part of this, but he says this will not end in death to his disciples. And so he's already embracing what he senses will come, that Lazarus will die. And then he says that this scenario will bring about God's glory and that the Son, capital S, Son, will be glorified. You know how sometimes we quote Rick Warren's opening line from The Purpose Driven Life? The opening line is, it's not about you. Well, in the case of Jesus, we can't say that. It was about him. He's actually saying something that sounds outrageous to us. Here's his friend who's dying, and he's in effect saying, Lazarus, it's not about you, it's about me. And it was. And what he announces to them was that God was up to something behind this entire sickness and death of Lazarus, and he was going to use it to bring about God's glory and that God was going to glorify Jesus as the Son in a very unique way. So there's the heartbreak of delay and it colors everything that happens when Jesus finally arrives in Bethany. 
There's also the heartbreak of death that is a part of this scene. Verse uh, 20 introduces us to this thought. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. So by the time that Jesus arrives at their home, Lazarus was dead. Friends and family are all around this scene. They've been coming to greet the family. And my guess is that everybody's wondering, hey, where is Jesus? Although that Jesus was a close friend of this particular family, doesn't it seem odd that Jesus isn't here? By the time Jesus arrives, Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days. You need to know something about Jewish culture. They don't delay things like we often do and wait till all the family can arrive and then they set up the service. When somebody dies, they didn't have the kind of embalming that we have today and they bury them quickly, often the same day. And Martha expresses her lament to Jesus. She says, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. How's that for pressure? Why did she say this? She knew that Jesus had healed many. Surely she would have healed Lazarus too, she reasons. And it's not inappropriate, but there's this lament, there's this heartbreak that's all around this scene. Along with the heartbreak, this is also a scene of risk. And that's the part that some people might miss when they read this particular account. But I want to point out the, the kinds of risk that also envelop this scene. First, there's the risk of Martha's boldness. Lord, Martha says to Jesus, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. It would be hard not to love somebody like Martha. She moves from blaming Jesus for Lazarus' death to boldly asserting that he can bring Lazarus back from the grave. I know it doesn't say that in those words, but doesn't that second verse in there, the 22nd verse, lead you to that thought, but even now God will give you whatever you ask? Martha may have stayed in the kitchen last time, but she's the one stepping out in faith now. Grief struck or not, Martha was convinced of the authority of Jesus' ministry. And she makes a claim that's bolder than just about anything that anybody has said to Jesus up until this point in the Gospels. Her line in verse 22 is one of the great faith statements of the entire Bible. But I know that even now, she says. And think about how, uh, when she says this. She says this after her brother's been dead for four days, after her brother's been in the tomb for four days, but I know that even now. That is some kind of powerful hope. That is some kind of amazing faith. I think it fits in with Daniel's three friends when they said, but even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. The threat there was, would they bow down and worship the golden image or would they be thrown into this furnace and burned alive? And the three friends of Daniel said, we know that our God is able to rescue us, but even if he does not, we will not compromise on worship. I think it fits with Esther's theme that we looked at about a month ago. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. 
Martha was entering into the mystery of when God says yes and when God says no. Have you ever noticed how God does that? We pray, we ask, and sometimes God answers our prayers the way that we hope, and sometimes God does not. But we are still instructed to ask. But I know that even now, she says, but I know that even now prayers and requests of God are, are honored by him. The older I get in the Lord, the more I find myself asking and pouring my requests into the mystery of the Lord's will. And I pray that way. Lord, I don't know what you have in mind. I don't know how you'll answer this prayer, but I'm going to ask because you invited us to ask. I'm going to invite you to pour out your mercy on this person or that person and even heal them I don't know why sometimes God says yes and why God sometimes says no. And I think that the longer that we walk in faith, the more that we bear scars from the times when God says no because his agenda didn't fit ours. There's something else that he's up to. Along with the risk of Martha's boldness, there's the risk of doing theology at a funeral. Do you ever take a look at Jesus' bedside manner here as he's talking with Martha? Verse 23 leads us into this thought. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die do you believe this? Now, I don't know about you, but I've always been taught that at funerals, this is the wrong time to argue theology. <laughs> People are grieving. People are hurting. It's a hard time. The, the emotion is tense. You can, you can cut it with a knife sometimes. They need us to listen in those moments. They need a, a reassuring presence. And I know that Jesus understood all of that too, Pastors are taught that this is never the time to argue some debatable point of theology and try to impress people with how brilliant we are or how much we've thought some deep, amazing thought. But Jesus takes the risk of challenging Martha here. Look at what he says. He opens this level of conversation by saying, your brother will rise again. He's just heard her lament saying, if you'd only been here, Jesus, Lazarus wouldn't have died. Martha then responds and she says, oh, I know, he'll, he'll, he'll rise again on the, the resurrection at the last day. So there's this general resurrection that's coming way off when Jesus returns, when everybody who has faith in him who's ever died will be gathered to Jesus. Historic Christians believe that. I do too. But Jesus wanted her to know that wasn't what he was talking about. He wasn't talking about the general resurrection that's going to happen someday that's beyond our control. So he adds this statement, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? It sounds like a confusing statement. But he was saying that there are people who will experience death. And even though they will experience that death, they will have an eternal life. 
and he wanted to know how deeply she believed in that. Was that some kind of intellectual concept that she'd bought into? Oh, yeah, 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 Jesus, the resurrection's gonna happen someday. Or did she really believe that Jesus had the very authority that she began to imply that he did when she says, but even now? Now, Lazarus would die again, even after being raised by Jesus. Jesus would bring Lazarus back from the dead, but this wasn't a resurrection, not the kind of resurrection that we hope for. It wasn't the kind of resurrection that Jesus was promising. Jesus was pressing Martha to see if she really believed in the central mission of Jesus as the Messiah. And so he says, whoever lives in Jesus now, even though he or she may die, will live forever that Jesus came to offer an eternal life that we begin to live in the foretaste of that eternal life now in this life. But the force of that eternal life that he offers is the kind of life that conquers death. The promise of eternal life was so important that Jesus risked talking theology with a grieving woman who was the brother of the dead man at a funeral service. I don't know about you, but I think I can see what Jesus is doing here. He wanted her to have this kind of faith and assurance. Can you see how badly Jesus wants people today to have that kind of faith to live by, that kind of assurance that even changes the way that we face death? He wants you and me to live with that faith and assurance Faith in the saving power and authority of Jesus as the Messiah and as the Son of God. Assurance that is anchored in his ability to fulfill his promises. In short, Jesus was offering a new way of living, a way of living that is liberated by faith. And then there was a third kind of risk. The risk of returning to danger. A few verses before the section that we read a few moments ago, as Jesus was beginning to make his way back from wherever he'd been teaching, back to Bethany, the disciples speak up. Verse eight says, but Rabbi, they said, a short while ago the Jews there tried to stone you and yet you are going back. The previous chapter explains why returning to the Jerusalem area was a risk for Jesus. John chapter 10 is a wonderful chapter in the gospel. It's where Jesus claimed to be the good shepherd. You remember those tones, I am the good shepherd, and the the good shepherd knows his sheep. They, They hear his voice and they respond. He knows them by name. He calls them. Good shepherd sounds good, right? What could be wrong with that? We we give hospitals names like that. Good shepherd hospital. There's a good shepherd hospital in Brockton. I think there's a good shepherd hospital in just about every major city across our, our country. But Jesus added to that thought, my sheep listen to my voice, I know them and they follow me, and I and the Father are one. And that statement got him in trouble. That was it for the Pharisees and for Jerusalem's religious leaders. In the Jewish scriptures, God himself is the one who shepherds his people. 
And by using that imagery and then by saying that he was one with the Father, they held that Jesus had committed blasphemy, that here was a mere man claiming to be God. And so chapter 10 tells us they picked up stones and they were ready to stone Jesus to death. They wanted to kill him. So imagine that. Saying that he's the good shepherd, this imagery that we love, that we put on the outside of our hospitals, almost got Jesus killed. This conflict had happened around the time of something that's called the Feast of Dedication. You know what the Feast of Dedication was? It's what we call Hanukkah today. Sometimes it was called the Festival of Lights. Sometimes it was the Feast of Dedication. It always happens in the, in the latter part of our calendar year, somewhere in late November to mid-December, sometimes right around the same time as Christmas. And it was an older time when they remembered this victory by the Jewish people over the Seleucids around 167, 168 B.C. And they would celebrate with the, the lights that are on that menorah that we still see in the homes of our, our Jewish friends today. So from that time until this moment when Jesus returns to the tomb of Lazarus, Jesus had not come back to Judea because he knew that the religious leaders wanted to kill him. They were looking to trap him. They were looking to set him up. We don't know exactly the, the date of when this takes place, but there's at least two or three months that have, come, that have gone by. And everyone around Jerusalem is wondering when Jesus will return, but he doesn't return until Passover week and the final chapter of his life commences. That meant that there was great risk in Jesus coming back to Judea to this town of Bethany that's a mile and a half to two miles away from Jerusalem in order to tend to his friend Lazarus. And so the disciples remind him, last time you were here, Jesus, they tried to stone you, and you're going back there? That means that Jesus returned at great risk for Lazarus. Do you remember a few minutes ago I said we would come back to this thought of crossing the line? Here is where we see that Jesus crossed the line of risk and discomfort for Lazarus. He put himself in harm's way at risk for his friend. Jesus crossed the line of heartbreak and risk so that Lazarus could live forever even though he would die and he crosses that line of heartbreak and risk today so that you and I can live together, to live forever even though we will die. I want to explore that thought of how Jesus crosses the line for a few minutes. Now the first is the obvious uh, statement that Jesus crossed the line for Lazarus. So we find that verse 53 a little bit farther on says, so from that day on they plotted to take his life. This is the result of coming to Bethany. This is the result of Jesus calling Lazarus from that tomb. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. 
In the way that John arranges his gospel, this was the last miracle. This was the final sign. One of the outlines that's embedded in the gospel of John is that John traces seven miraculous signs beginning with changing the water into wine in chapter two up through the seventh one which is this raising of Lazarus from the tomb four days after he died in chapter 11. And the word that's used there in the Greek language of the New Testament literally uh, doesn't neatly fall into the word sign or fall into the word miracle best interpreted miraculous sign in other words a miracle that they couldn't explain other than by saying God did something through Jesus here but each of these miracles were designed to point to something greater than the miracle itself we've in the past gone through a whole series exploring them let me just give you two of them the first of them changing the water into wine shows that uh, Jesus can take things that are ordinary and common like hand washing water and he can change it into something of a different substance even a higher substance so when the wine runs out at the wedding his mother says effectively do something Jesus he says it's not my time and then he sends the servants over to these large jars of water and says draw some out and bring it to the master of ceremonies they do and he tastes it and he says whoa most people serve the really good wine first and then after your taste buds have dulled a bit they, they bring out the cheap stuff but you have saved the best until now so what did Jesus do he took something common and ordinary changed it into something that's of a different substance and of higher value which signifies he can take common and ordinary people and change them into something that they are not born as children of God of higher value, of higher substance, which is, which is the essential promise of Jesus that goes all the way back to chapter one of this gospel. To those who received him, those who believed in his name, he gave the right to be called children of God. That's it. How do we get into the family of God and be, be children of God who are recognized by him and recognized by Jesus by receiving him and believing in his name? This is the final, these miracles, and that one points to something greater that Jesus does. And so the raising of Lazarus points to Jesus' authority over life and death, which is an essential insight for every Christian in every age. Because Christianity is not just about how we live now and how we feel now. It is about that hope of how we become connected to God forever. And it, re it reveals Jesus' authority even over death. Comedian Mark Lowry says, uh, Jesus never preached at a funeral. When the dead sit up, the funeral's over. So he never got there. Here's a second way Jesus cross crosses the line. He crossed the line for hopeless causes. Verse 39 is interesting. It's, Jesus says, take away the stone. But Lord, Martha argues, by this time there's a bad odor. The King James Bible says, by this time he stinks, for he's been dead for, for four days. In other words, Lazarus was a hopeless cause. There's a Canadian evangelist named Terry Sisney who says that Jesus came for what he calls the Lazarus generation. What's the Lazarus generation? Well, he says Lazarus represents a hopeless cause. 
an irreversible situation, a condition beyond repair. I don't know about you, but I think when somebody's been in the grave for four days, that's a hopeless cause. That is a condition beyond repair. I've been conditioned to think that way. You've been conditioned to think that way. But it didn't limit the power and authority of Jesus. Sisney adds, this generation that we live in today is not beyond reach. Every generation tends to think that we're facing something that we've never seen before that's harder for God than any time before. And what he points out is that there is one thing, one factor about Lazarus that changes everything. He came out of the tomb because he heard the voice of Jesus. And so Sisney goes on to say, people aren't beyond reach today. They just need to hear the voice of Jesus. And when the voice of Jesus breaks through, everything changes. That's the great hope that we have. It's the hope that's buried in the gospel. Not that people will hear you alone or me alone, but they will hear Jesus through the eternal word of God, sometimes spoken by us. And when the voice of Jesus breaks through, there is a new life that results. One old preacher noted that it was a good thing that when Jesus came to the grave, he was very specific and he said, Lazarus, come forth. Because he, if he hadn't called Lazarus by name, every grave within earshot would have opened and all the dead would have risen all around that cemetery. That would be something to see. But here's the best part of all. He crossed the line for me and he crossed the line for you. Faith begins at the end of your comfort zone. Have you ever had the sense that maybe you're a hopeless cause? That you're beyond the reach of God's grace? Perhaps that's the way that you were feeling coming in here today, wondering why am I even here? And perhaps today you're hearing the voice of Jesus in a new way. He's calling you out, calling you out of spiritual deadness, calling you out of spiritual darkness, calling you into a new way of, of living your life. And if you're hearing the voice of Jesus, it's time to step out right now by putting your faith and your trust in Jesus. This involves a transfer of trust where you have to give up on something. You have to give up on trying to save yourself or make yourself religious enough or perfect enough or good enough that's the phrase I always here. I'm good, I'm fine, just the way I am. Don't need anything else. Wrong. We all need Jesus. That transfer of trust shifts to thinking that we can make something happen to trusting the one who's already done it for us and who's already made the way possible for us to live guilt-free in the presence of God. That's an amazing thought, knowing that we are radically forgiven. Jesus crossed the line for you. He did it on that Good Friday. He did it in coming back to Jerusalem again, just as he did it by coming to Bethany for Lazarus. Have you ever been tempted to give up on a family member who is spiritually wandering? They made a mess of their lives. They seem that it's going farther and farther away. You've prayed a zillion times. You need to know something. Jesus crossed the line for that person too. Keep praying. 
that they will hear the authoritative call of Jesus. That's all that needs to happen is that they're in a place where they can hear the voice of Jesus break through and call out with the same ears that a dead man seemed to have within that tomb when he heard Jesus call his name Lazarus. I would love to have been there that day to see what happened. Can you imagine all the friends of Jesus when he says, roll away the stone, and they're saying, oh man, this is going to be bad. Who's going to volunteer for this job? And then they roll away the stone, and he calls out, Lazarus, come out. You know how they, they wrapped people? They bound them with cloths. So it must have been like, here's Lazarus. <laughs> Quick, somebody un unbind me. Take this thing off. I'm alive. <laughs> here's the point. Jesus crossed a line of heartbreak and risk so that we can live forever even though we die. And we need to believe that not only for ourselves, but also for the people who will only hear the voice of Jesus through us. Down on the bottom of the page here, I've got a little response section. And I wonder, you know, which box should you check off? The first one says, I realize that Jesus crossed the line for me and I'm deciding to put my faith and trust in him. If you've never done that, we're not going to put you on the spot, but you're really standing on your own and you're trying to save yourself until you make that decision. And the invitation of Jesus is there to make that shift and then tell somebody about it today. Here's the second possible response. I'm renewing my commitment to pray for. Who is it? that you've given up on or that you've been tempted to give up on, who's been wandering spiritually and you're concerned about. Write that name in there and keep praying. Sometimes he leads us to go and to do something that's way outside your comfort zone. So the third response that I wrote here says, when Jesus calls, I will cross lines of comfort to go where he calls so that hopeless causes will hear his voice. Uh, maybe that's going on a mission trip. Uh, maybe that's uh, getting involved in some kind of a mystery that puts, uh, ministry that puts you outside your comfort zone. But we want to be a group of people who go. We don't just sit here inside the walls, but as we are going, we will experience the power of God. Jesus crossed the line of heartbreak and risk for you and for me. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for these amazing gospel passages that make us think. I prayed earlier that you would allow each of us to hear your voice. And I renew that prayer. And so in that spirit of boldness, we continue to pray for family members and friends who spiritually have seemingly closed the door to even talking with us about faith. But we pray that you would put them in a place where somehow, some way, through somebody, they hear your authoritative voice. Lord, we pray for those who seem like hopeless causes that we've been praying for for a long time and we've not seen the, the full breakthrough. And we continue to pray that your authority and your power and your mercy will be unleashed in their lives. Pray for Barb Candlish with the long ordeal that she's been through physically, and we ask that your healing power 
would be on display in her life. We pray for Karen North Shelley, who's been dealing with her cancer for years, and it's hard. And we pray that your healing power would be evident in her life. Lord, we pray for the secret pains that we carry in this room, for the solutions that only you can provide. And we pray that whatever is blocking them would be removed and that we would be able to rely on your power trusting that we don't know how it will happen, but that in the right time and the right way, you will speak and your power will be on display and it will be all about Jesus again, not us. So we pray these things in his mighty name. Amen. Come on back next week. We're going to do another What Happened. And we're looking forward to celebrating together in two weeks on Easter Sunday. Next Sunday, we're going to baptize a handful of people. If you'd like to be in on that, let me or one of our pastors know. Uh, We'd love to include you in that. We've got one final song, and then we're off to enjoy the day.